Collective Medical Technologies, the product, emerged on the scene as a project to help improve care delivery by examining various points of care and key pieces of data to tell a bigger story about a patient. That experience from a social worker in Idaho informed an Excel spreadsheet to track frequent patients in a local ER. But eventually that spreadsheet practice became something else entirely and served as the basis of care and sharing information securely across a network of collaborative providers. In recent years, collective medical technologies emergence is prevalent thanks to their tools that help curb opioid abuse by alerting providers on key markers. Today, their practices are even more relevant as they make aspects of their public health platform available for existing client hospitals to help address the COVID-19 outbreak. We grabbed a few minutes with Chris Klomp to talk about Collective Medical Technologies. As CEO, he has led their approach, and he talks about what role public health data can play in the coming months to disrupt the politics that will most certainly come into play as we examine how best to address lessons learned in the COVID-19 pandemic. Among other things, we talk about how his team has gathered to work on the COVID-19 pandemic and how they responded. I'm Lance Lunsford, senior partner at Groundswell Health. View more at ourgroundswell.com slash connectedhospital, where you can find all our episodes, or at touchpoint.health, where you can listen to the entire collection of Touchpoint Health's amazing healthcare industry podcasts. Chris, thanks again for jumping on the, the podcast with us. Uh, we've talked so many times before and, went, of course, um, did a deal in Texas in the past. And um, I've learned a lot about uh, collective medical technologies and, and what you're bringing to the table. But why don't you spend just a, a second kind of giving us, before we go in and really dive into the COVID crisis and how your team's work has uh, responded there and, and provided value in the industry, why don't you tell us just a second, if you could, about uh, Collective Medical's core philosophy and, and core service lines. Yeah, thanks, Lance. I appreciate it. It's good to be chatting with you again. So Collective Medical is based in Salt Lake. We operate the leading real-time care activation, alerting, and collaboration platform in the country. And our goal is to stitch together what would otherwise be disparate stakeholders across the healthcare continuum. It could be hospitals, health systems, post-acute operators, primary specialty care clinics, accountable care organizations, and health plans for purposes of understanding where their shared patients are traveling, but in real time, and then identifying those patients who are facing you know, what we would call imminent but avoidable risk so that we can then activate the most appropriate stakeholders to intervene on behalf of the patients and hopefully prevent whatever this bad thing is that we've identified from actually coming to pass. Our mission is just that then. It's, it's how do we place the right insights in front of the right stakeholders so that we can inform and influence their decision-making uh, uh, to proactively intervene on behalf of individual patients to ideally uh, restore them as quickly as possible to a place of health and do so in the most effective and efficient, which includes cost efficient, uh, or cost efficiency, but efficient manner possible. And uh, the vision is to catch patients before they fall through the cracks and no, to do that really, by enabling collective activity. 
where we really saw that value. And I think the reason, you know, we gravitated towards you when, when, when in Texas was really around uh, the opioid epidemic, uh, you know, several years ago, not that it, not that it's not an issue that we still have to work on today, but um, tell me how in, in the way you just described it, you know, their service line, just as an example, as a way to kind of pull out that, that as an application, tell me about how you get your, your service line and technologies addresses that for a hospital um, as, a, as a real case. Sure. Yeah, the opioid epidemic is such a, a, a catastrophic uh, uh, public health crisis. And uh, in many ways, you know, the, the national attention, the global attention is on COVID-19 right now appropriately. But in relative scale, the opioid epidemic is and will likely be a longer lasting and even more significant impact, uh, tragically. And if you think about what's actually occurring to the individual who is struggling with substance use disorder, uh, this circumstance is in many ways um, you know, is avoidable. And so uh, this will be an overly simplistic uh, representation, but you know, bear with me. Let's take an individual who uh, is gainfully employed, uh, happy, healthy, contributing member of society, has a family, and uh, something happens, he loses his job. And I'm totally stereotyping here, and I, and I understand that, so bear with me. Uh, so he loses his job and he uh, becomes depressed, and uh, in that process, uh, begins to struggle with addiction. It might be with alcohol, it could be with other substances. And in that process, develops an addiction. Uh, or differently, uh, 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 a young mother who has uh, necessary surgery and is appropriately treated with um, opioids to manage the pain, but has a genetic predisposition to addiction uh, to that particular painkiller and, and becomes addicted. Both, both situations of individuals, and I think they're very representative of a of, you know, much broader uh, subset of individuals who never sought to become addicted. I, I think about kids uh, who my own children, I have four under the age of five or five and under, and none of them is sitting and saying, I hope I become a drug addict someday. I hope I become addicted to opioids. Uh, no one sets out for that. We all have our grand dreams and ambitions, and yet these life, life throws us these curveballs, and we end up in these circumstances um, oftentimes through no fault of our own. And so here we are with this man or this woman in, the, in this archetypal example, and they start bouncing around different uh, uh, care settings, uh, perhaps feigning uh, a different story, uh, all in pursuit of fueling this addiction, the, 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 the tyranny of which they can't break from. And, and so uh, in the most simplistic example, let's take the man who bounces around to multiple emergency departments, each time with a different alias, a different background story, a different chief complaint. One day it's uh, nondescript migraine, another day it's nondescript lower lumbar back pain, a different time it's generic abdominal pain, all difficult to diagnose yet painful and real conditions. And, and so the result of this is, is obviously, uh, or at least historically, often uh, another prescription for an opioid, which further fuels the addiction. And yet there may be other resources in the community who could help treat the underlying root cause issues that are 
challenging these individuals, but they're unaware that these patients are jumping from emergency department to emergency department. And in fact, each of the emergency departments is unaware that this individual is jumping from one site to another site because they're changing their name, they're changing their story. And again, not through malicious intent, they are uh, being controlled by this addiction that they can't break free from. And so we built software at the behest of one of my partner's mothers who saw this in her own community 20 years ago as a social worker. Uh, And the software simply works to identify who that individual is aggregates their longitudinal visit history, stitches together the, you know, the breadcrumbs and says, okay, I got it. I see a pattern now. There's a patient who's bouncing from care setting to care setting. Let's make sure that this team of otherwise disparate providers begin to collectively care for this patient uh, as though they were on exactly the same team, because in fact, they are united by this common stewardship and have them coordinate their activities and uh, perhaps start to meet her uh, uh, the prescriptions that are issued and to help enroll and then help this patient maintain adherence to an addiction recovery program so that we can also then focus on their underlying root causes for the gentleman that might be treating the depression, but you can't treat depression if you also then can't treat the root cause, perhaps sent him there in the first place of losing his job and maybe landing him in homelessness. And so you have social, physical, mental, and behavioral pathologies, all of which require an extreme level of coordination. And that begins with a heightened level of awareness across those stakeholders. And so well, I think that, yeah, that, I understand that's a gloriously oversimplified example, and yet it's yeah. real. Yeah, it's real. And I think that that's, that's ultimately what makes, I think that people don't realize too, that hospitals are dealing with that. There's a cost that comes to um, the, the kind of experience you just outlined that's that's even hard to kind of see on a, on a balance sheet. And it's certainly outside the bounds of what we have examined to be, or we, we, uh, the public views the role of the hospital. And so that balancing act. And so they're having to call on more tools and more investments and more, um, kind of solutions. And it's not a better time, um, than, than, um, uh, than, than now to be able to, to bring kind of, the technology that your team brings to the table because there's a greater sense of awareness. There's hospitals are investing more in a, uh, health informatics teams. Um, and so that, that I guess brings up the point of as COVID started to emerge, um, when, when did you guys um, start to see that there was going to be an application for not necessarily your services, but your mindset, your philosophy that kind of drives the underlying kind of foundation of the business that at some point in your DNA, did y'all your spite, your, your, uh, collective medical spidey sense? Um, did y'all realize that, um, this was a, this wasn't just necessarily something to examine as an, a threat domestically, but something that piqued your interest for your teams to go look at as we had heard it kind of percolating in, uh, in Asia. Yeah, you know, it's always easy to Monday morning quarterback and say that somehow we were prescient and proactive and we always had a game plan and knew exactly what we were going to do. And and I think that would be at best disingenuous and more likely just straight up a lie. Uh, we didn't. Uh, and I don't think most people had a, had a proactive game plan for this. And if we did as a globe or as a planet and, and certainly as a country, then then we might find ourselves in a different set of circumstances. Uh, I think we started to your question, like pretty much everybody did 
in the country and across the planet, which is, wow, this seems really bad. How do we help? And, uh, you know, just as a random aside, I really like looking for silver linings in bad situations. And I'm not sugarcoating that this is clearly a crisis and a bad situation, but there are silver linings. I get to spend more time with my family. I'm in a fortunate position for that. Uh, I'm currently employed. I'm grateful for that. Uh, a lot of, lot of Americans aren't. Uh, uh, we're learning as a country right now, painfully, how to be better prepared the next time this happens. I'm grateful for that. Another thing that I, I uh, uh, feel gratitude for is that as a country, and again, I'm grateful for this, uh, we are really good in times of crisis as Americans. Uh, you back us into a corner and we're scrappy and we fight. And, uh, and, and that's not to say there aren't plenty of others across the world who, who don't do the same thing, they do. Uh, and indeed, this is probably one of the only times in the history of the planet that the singular focus of the human race has been on exactly the same thing, which is pretty cool. Uh, and certainly that's true for Americans, but how great is it that everyone wants to help? People are just a little bit kinder right now mm -hmm. and uh, leaning just a little bit more forward and trying to do things for their community and be good stewards. And, and I love that. I hope that we don't lose that added measure of empathy that I think as a, as a collective conscience, uh, our consciousness that we were developing and, and practicing right now, because it's, it's pretty beautiful. Uh, for us as a company, then, uh, you know, hopefully more with, with, with greater measure of brevity in my own response to your question. Uh, I think we started with two things. One, how do we help? And two, we quickly started getting calls in from our client partners across the country, leading academic health systems or medical centers, uh, uh, health plans, others who were saying, well, you, you have a lot of real-time data collective. Like, what can you be doing? You should do something. Uh, and it was a nondescript, you should do something, but just you, surely you should be doing something, do it. And, and so we started to think through notions of, well, what are, the, what are the problems that are applicable in our domain that we might be able to help with? PPE, we thought about running PPE drives, right? Nope, that's probably not our core competency. Uh, uh, you know, community involvement and supporting the homeless, absolutely, uh, uh, as individuals and individual team members, we should focus on that. Uh, but as a company, what are our unique assets? Well, we, we're pretty proficient in working with real-time data that's comprehensively distributed across many different care settings. And we're pretty good about running real-time analytics against that data to look for patterns, both deterministically and using you know, more advanced deep learning models. And so we should think about that. And in that process, realized we could help our client partners and others a few different ways um, and, and thinking about those both as, uh, you know, let's say health systems and health plans is principally one cohort and uh, public health agencies, federal and state as a different cohort. Uh, and, and, and so what we've done is focus on building, uh, I mean, the other important point was we realized that uh, we had no desire to make any money on this crisis. Uh, we did not want to profiteer. Uh, that was not the objective. And we quickly cleared that with our board and our investors to make it clear that we were going to run after this and expend probably really significant company resources on it. And there was absolutely no intention of a return. And, and that was a very quick conversation. Uh, uh, so for hospitals and health systems, 
uh, we're focused on uh, pulling in uh, our, our real-time ABT data, aggregating that, that's admit discharge transfer data, so it understands uh, how patients come and go uh, to different care settings, why they're there, who they're seeing, what their history is, augmenting that data with other forms of richer clinical data that we might pull out of uh, continuity of care documents, uh, lab information that we might be bringing in from a public health agency so that first and foremost, we could help providers uh, uh, stay safe and then help their patients stay safe. So that was objective number one for the first cohort of hospitals and health plans. And so we did that by simply alerting in real time whenever a patient showed up somewhere uh, for that provider if that patient was suspected or confirmed uh, uh, COVID positive so that they could take appropriate measures. Um, and then on a de-identified basis, and this is important because crises often allow uh, otherwise well-intentioned but perhaps not uh, fully caring entities to abuse things like privacy. Uh, and what we didn't want to do is propagate, uh, 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 for example, uh, an identified patient surveillance system. That's not a good or kind of something I want as a patient or an individual, certainly. So how do we help in a de-identified way? Uh, 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 well, describe, describe for me what that- uh, help, that uh, Public health agencies, you know, yeah. What would that surveillance yeah, so, system so, be, and why? Why is that kind of a something you clarify of of a difference? Yeah. So you know, there have been articles about uh, uh, you know the current uh, administration wanting to build uh, you know an okay. identified you know kind of you know patient specific surveillance system. Uh, so that you could understand every time a patient went to a hospital, why they're there, who they are, who they're seeing, so on and so forth. And well, certainly. You want your your physician to know your medical history and be able to make good decisions for you. I'm not sure that you want uh, uh, your government knowing that same information. Uh, right. And by I'm not so sure. I mean, I don't want uh, others outside my physician knowing that. I don't think most of us do. Right. And yet, I do want uh, my uh, uh, public health representatives at my uh, county and state public health department, as well as uh, you know our federal representatives, to have good information so they can make informed decisions about appropriate uh, policies that will protect the country and help us emerge from this more quickly. Yeah. And so if you think about that challenge, you know, what are the data types that they could use to do that? Well, they can measure deaths. Um, and certainly that gives you a sense of how the disease is progressing. Um, it's a little retrospective and we'd like to prevent those in the first place. So let's go further upstream. Okay, well then we can look at tests. Yes, that's true. But that presupposes uh, there's a, you know, when we're looking at a, a, a COVID positive rate, there's a numerator and a denominator in that equation. The numerator is how many people were, you know, tested COVID positive or how many people were tested COVID negative. But there's a denominator, of course, which is simply how many people were tested. And if you're changing that denominator in a rapid way, uh, but not fully predictable, uh, which is the case here is as we both the states and as a, a, a nationally work to increase the level of testing, that makes that data a little bit unreliable. Uh, we might have very extreme uh, 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 public policy uh, mitigation measures in place in a given geography that are effective at flattening the curve, so to speak. And yet it looks like we've got this next wave of, of the pandemic of the virus coming at us. And really it's just because we're changing the the denominator, we're changing the number of tests because we're getting better at testing. So that makes that data 
until it's at a place of steady state stasis, uh, less reliable. So where else might we look? And this is, this is where collective comes into play, which is, well, uh, people who are getting sick are showing up to their providers. And actually, first and foremost, they're often showing up to their hospital. And so if we are tracking in real time, uh, uh, when patients show up at an emergency department, for example, we can look at the data and understand those who are are presenting with complaints that could be related to COVID, so a suspected COVID case, and then those who are being confirmed as COVID, either as a function of their symptoms or as a function of the testing that they're then subsequently administered. And that becomes a very reliable, very distributed data set that allows okay. policymakers to make decisions. Because you're essentially, you're essentially going in and examining not just those people that are coming away from those tests, but all of the demographic and uh, all of the data demographic pieces um, that that come along with that. So, what are what's to establish kind of markers? I'm I'm guessing that you're saying. So, if someone came, comes in and you've got this data set of people that came away with positives, you can go in and look at that data and look at any kind of shared commonalities, whether it's income, whether it's, um, I mean, there, there's, I guess there's any number of those. Is that how this, how that kind of, are those, those the kind of markers that you guys look at to make that determination of what that risk looks like? So I think you can start with basic patient demographics. So age cohorts, ethnicity cohorts, uh, you know, geographic proximity, uh, looking then at, uh, Uh, you know, other uh, populations uh, who may be affected with, you know, different disease states or different physical uh, ailments. Uh, and so we're looking at that, but we're doing that in an aggregated and de-identified way. Uh, one, that, one that's protecting patient privacy along the way. Uh, so, so again, two cohorts of users. First, the provider and, and go back to first principles. What are our first principles? Well, we want to help. We care about patient safety. We want to promote provider safety and enable that. And we want to enable a more informed public health response to guide policy decisions. Those policy decisions could be around allocation of beds and other other uh, PPE. Uh, they could be around social distancing measures. Uh, they could govern closure of businesses that are deemed non-essential or congregations of uh, individuals in public, uh, closures of schools, so on and so forth. The first, the first cohort of uh, providers. Uh, uh, we want to provide patient-specific identified data to a provider to help them better understand, is the patient with whom you're interacting right now uh, presenting for some reason entirely unrelated to COVID-19? Uh, are they a suspected COVID-19 case or are they a confirmed COVID-19 case? And we want to do that in real time uh, on an identified basis that protects patient privacy but allows that patient's physician, nurse, or other practitioner to render the best possible care to them. Uh, and so we're doing that. We're, we're providing real-time alerting directly in the point of care to help providers make better decisions for their individual patients who may be struggling with, uh, with this particular disease. The second cohort, uh, uh, public health agencies, so state and federal, uh, is more aligned, I think, with what you're alluding to about these other data analytics. This is data that should only be managed, I think, in a de-identified de way. Uh, and there are many different interesting cuts to look at from an epidemiological perspective around uh, disease progression, 
as a function of different defining demographics and other patient characteristics, uh, race, ethnicity, age, uh, geographic uh, proximity, uh, presence of other comorbid conditions. And if we can understand in real time with accurate data, so controlling for that denominator effect of testing data itself, then those public health officials are better positioned to make more timely and more appropriate response. And they're facing an impossible challenge right now. How do we protect society? How do we protect providers? How do we help patients get through this and save lives on the one hand? And how do we not cripple our economy on the other hand? And there is, of course, a, a very real and significant tension there. And you see divide across red states and blue states. But in fact, this should not be a political issue. This isn't about infringing on individuals' rights and liberties. Uh, this is about keeping people safe and preserving those rights and liberties, doing it in a way that preserves privacy, but, but using data to do that in the most objective way possible. And so it need not be politicized. And, and our objective has been to provide data to those who could use it um, in a safe and responsible manner in a way that protects the privacy of individual citizens uh, uh, and allows those those officials to balance that otherwise seemingly impossible set of tasks well, of I think you bring public up health a, and managing the economy. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point on it's, it's, that that we we talk about internally here on on my team, and that is that are we you know at what effect is politics going to have to inhibit or really propel uh, perpetuate good good public health policy in the, in the aftermath. And so I'll, I'll kind of put, you know, my final question up here at the front before I kind of make a, a point, but I'd like to know kind of whether you have a, um, whether you'll be kind of, are you, are you going to be enabled in any way to, to, whether it's through your expertise and experience with collective medical to have a role in, in how we as a country are going to be leading in the future um, and using our experience to respond to future pandemics. But, you know, I think when you bring up your 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 numerator versus denominator, your numerator and denominator kind of consideration for that, um, for for how we make these determinations, I think that's where we really are in trouble as a country because there's so much information that's out there, and there's so many people with kind of a political um, position that they want to use the information that perpetuates their existing political uh, philosophy. Um, but there's going to be a lot of people out there that are, are convincible that, you know, it's 10% of the population, 20% of the population that are willing to hear out and be convinced to, to vote on one side or, or another, but taking kind of electoral politics out of it and bringing more of like governing politics into it. Are we going to be in a position where we can have that conversation by using thoughtful leaders like yourself um, to have a voice and a seat at the table when it comes to the experience you and your team have had and, and how we'll respond using data in the uh, in the uh, in solving the next kind of pandemic crisis? Look, yeah, there's a lot there, uh, and 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 I'm not sure I'll do that question justice. I'll start by saying I'm glad I'm not a politician. Uh, and, and and the uh, burden doesn't follow uh, fall to me to try and sort all of this out. Uh, and I think I'd be naive to think that in future crises, which there surely will be, that politics doesn't have a continued role. Uh, uh, for better or worse, everyone seems to have someone uh, to whom they answer, some set of constituents. 
and uh, and and I actually think that's what makes uh, part of our our government as a republic so great uh, this democratic process that allows that to be and allows there to be dissenting views. That said, I am a huge believer in objectivity and data. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the notion or adage that did the data will set you free is something that I I, I strongly adhere to, and so step back in this pandemic for a second, second and, and let's do a mini postmortem. And, and there should, and I'm, I'm sure we'll be, you know, much more in-depth postmortems conducted in the, in the coming uh, you know, days, months, and years so that I hope we learn from this and we improve rather than pointing fingers, uh, which is, is what we're so often prone to do from a political perspective in this country. I hope we can just sit and say collectively, okay, where did we make mistakes on all sides and how do we get better? Data is one of those things where we can get much, much better. So think about right now uh, 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 how this has played out and some of the measures that we've taken. I remember when we first started uh, uh, down the path, there was discussion, well, we're going to close down uh, non-essential businesses for two weeks, and we think that's going to help. Well, why two weeks? Crickets. Nobody had an answer. And then we talked about, uh, well, we're not going to wear masks. You don't need to wear masks. There's no data to suggest that. Yeah, that wasn't a very intuitively logical thing, but uh, yeah, I understand it. Maybe we were trying to preserve uh, you know, critical PPE for providers, but, but it felt a little arbitrary. And then we talk about, uh, well, we need to uh, socially distance six feet, as though there was great data that suggested that six feet was the magic number and the virus could only travel uh, you know, kind of 5.9 eight feet, uh, but it couldn't travel six feet. Um, when, you know, in fact, later we would learn, I remember, you know, like I think some data out of MIT that was very interesting that the aerosolized transmission rate of uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, uh, is in fact, uh, you know, up to 27 feet. But, but 27 feet is not a very practical guy, uh, you know, number to give people in guidance when they're trying to go to the grocery store. And so, you know, the list goes on. Uh, you know, we're going to close schools, but temporarily, but that's going to evolve over time. And and the challenge is we've got policymakers who had this impossible task of trying to keep us safe and make decisions, but with at least one, if not both hands tied behind their back and potentially a blindfold on as well. And, and again, I don't mean that in a critical way. I mean, it is in a, that's a really difficult, impossible situation. They didn't have the data and we have this unknown enemy uh, about which we know extremely little. And, and yet there is data. And so how do we aggregate that data more quickly and get it in the hands of those who are making decisions that we've we've appointed and elected uh, as our leaders. So number one to me is to understand the disease progression. Uh, and we're certainly working on that at Collective and, and trying to help various federal and state agencies. And we're certainly working on it to help you know, providers and others. And I think that's one area that we can move even faster next time and even perhaps be prepared ahead of time to understand how individual citizens or citizen patients are making use of healthcare resources in a massively distributed, uh, broad sense uh, across our 4,700 some odd hospitals and you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of other providers, so that we understand root cause. Um, second, I think that we can use that data then to understand the effectiveness of uh, the public health policy measures that we're implementing. So, you know, if we have that first piece of data, then we can start to measure disease progression. And we can measure disease progression in more localized geographies to understand, okay, well, if I turn social distancing on as a measure and say everybody needs to stay six feet apart, do I see any change in the doubling rate of the disease? Or if I close schools or non-essential businesses, 
do I see a change in the in the doubling of the rate? And uh, or if I require uh, uh, people to wear masks in public, do I see see a change in the doubling uh, of the of uh, of uh, you know, the disease progression? And, and then now I start to have a, a set of tools at my disposal that say. Got it. I know that uh, for a given set of circumstances, if I layer on one, two, three, four, five different um, uh, mitigation measures, this will be effectively uh, the, the general form of impact on the disease. And as we think about our long-term recovery and return to, uh, you know, quote-unquote normalcy, while trying to balance the economy as well, uh, uh, without compromising the health and safety of, of every person in the country, you need that kind of data. And I think, in fact, we, we are starting to have that. And so that public policy makers are able to make informed, objective decisions. And then we can have a debate. Uh, but let's not be debating the facts, which is actually where I think a lot of the debate has been sitting. Let's establish a fact pattern, and then let's have a debate about what we want to do about it. Okay. In this geography, in the state of Texas, here's how the disease is progressing. And based on how the disease is progressing, what the r naught is, and what the IFR and the CFR are, uh, so it's the you know, infection fatality rate, the case fatality rate, here's how we think about uh, you know, the, the likely death toll. And now let's balance that with these different measures. Do we want to start very soft and just ask for six-foot social distancing? Do we want to impose something a little bit more stringent? We know what the data is. We know how that each one of those measures will impact uh, you know, disease progression. And that allows us to then have an appropriate political debate that I think does merit uh, a, 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 you know, kind of a, a right to live uh, within our political arena. The problem right now is everything's conflated all at once. And, and well, I think and that's I the challenge that you're alluding to. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think what what consumers want is, and again, ironically, we've got we've never had better access to information than than in, in any time in our history com compared to now. I mean, um, and yet so, so much misinformation as well. Right. right. And so our our almost, chief medical officer is an infectious disease doc. He sends out an email to our team each week that says, you know, based on everything that I've read in the news this week and the studies, let me yeah. cut through the BS for you and tell you what I'm seeing as a trained infectious disease physician who is actually practicing on the front lines and in discussions with the foremost experts in the country. Here's, here's, what, here's what the objective fact is. You can debate what you want to do with it, but here's what the fact pattern is. Well, and I, you know, you and I think, country. And, and that's the, and there's still a challenge to that because you still are bringing a perspective on things and, and two points there. So uh, you, you, you as a physician may have a, a value, you know, we're, there's not ever, we're not going to be able to have a conversation about the value for a life at a given age. So if we have a, 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 a mortality rate at a given rank at a, at a, in a life that's been lived for 85 years, we're not going to be able to have a conversation about that life versus one that's dying at, at 55 because it's all valuable and there's too much political risk to say that one is more valuable oh, yeah. than another. Sure, it's easy for me to sit and say, great, like let's not take Herculean, or Herculean measures to extend the life of an 85-year-old by three right. months. Uh, and that might sound clinically cold-hearted and easy for me to do and say that's for the good of the country and the sustainability of, you know, Medicare coffers. But, you know, if it's my own, you know, parent 
I might right. feel incredibly differently about that. And there's nothing I wouldn't pay for three more months. So that's right. probably not the discussion to be having to your point. But, but I mean, you would think with an educated, as much education as we've had, as we're one of the most educated societies in terms of time that spent in a classroom, you would think we could have an unemotional conversation about that. And I think it's just the reality of it. I mean, it's a point to ponder and not necessarily wring our hands over. But the other thing on that too, about too much information is, you know, we had um, YouTube actually pulled down the really popular viral video of the physicians that were doing a breakdown of the mortality rate versus the uh, infected rate. And, and, you know, everybody's pointing to this saying, Hey, these are, these are two doctors. These are two physicians. They're two trusted resources, but the owners of a freestanding ER or a freestanding urgent care have their own, um, their own motivations for going public with a certain kind of uh, information and, and data. And again, not to say that, some of their data wasn't wrong or not here to contest that data, but it's still unclear to the average citizen that those two business owners were, were all, not just uh, business owners, uh, were not just physicians, but they're also business owners that was on shutdown. I agree. And so this is where you need, uh, this is where great leadership comes into play. Uh, and, and I think great leadership has to manifest at every level of the country. Uh, it's in, in local communities, it's in our businesses, it's at state level, and it's certainly at the federal level. Uh, you know, examples of great leaders to me right now are, you know, Drs. Fauci and Burks. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, Dr. Fauci in particular uh, does not seem to be somebody who doesn't speak his mind uh, very directly, uh, uh, you know, kind of. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, uh, consequences be darned. He, he, he and and he's become a voice of truth. And people may not like what he says, but he speaks based on what the data says. And and he's not opining from a political perspective. Yeah, it's yeah, nice well, to have leaders like that. Yeah, as you know, as we were, we've talked a couple of times now on some of that offline. My affinity for Dr. Burks, like I'm completely redefining what I want to, what what I'm projecting myself to want to achieve. I mean, her economy of words and her ability to kind of um, be being political, but coming across as apolitical, like is is incredible to me, and it's it, perfect timing She's for a leader impressive. like that. Yeah, it's incredible. But, I agree. Uh, She's deeply impressive. And I'm grateful that we've got two people who are willing to yeah. put themselves, extend themselves and, and, and try to speak truth you know, based well, on love, data. And also to tell us where we have deficiencies. And again, yeah. this principle of leadership, I think, is so important at every level. And well, we're learning we a lot on, on how to lead. As we kind of sign off here and, and kind of come to a close, I, I kind of want to circle back to your original point of, that I, I really liked. And I think it was a good one. That it's really a unique experience uh, in world history that we're all kind of singularly focused on this one common enemy. And I, I, I think that that's something that um, we're, we're looking past as we all still, as people still tend to travelize. Um, you know, I think we all thought that we would all kind of come together as a world, um, you know, the way that 
1994, Bill Pullman and Will Smith showed us we would in the documentary uh, Independence Day, where we all... <laughs> that speech, uh, that speech right. on the airplane before they go for the final battle, <laughs> tearjerker man, who knew? We all, we all thought that would be our, our fight, but I guess this is, I guess we'll, we'll probably see a, a big uh, crop of movies come out where we're fighting this this. Uh, but something beyond besides the, the zombies aliens may good. still be coming, and they may bring their own pandemic. Yeah, well, <laughs> hard to know. You know, at this point, 2020 couldn't get get much worse, so uh, might as well. Well, Chris, I I appreciate it. You know, it's 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 good talking to you. I've always enjoyed it. Of course, um, your your background and and experience as a leader is something that's admirable, um, and I've always appreciated getting to have an audience with you and kind of seeing you at work. Um, but I also like seeing more than that the growth of collective medical technologies and it's it's um it, it's it's becoming a known entity as a brand in the healthcare community and i i'm, I'm excited about that in the future no I, I appreciate it lance it's fun to get to visit with you it's uh it's been rewarding and humbling to be in this role uh and particularly during this crisis i've certainly made a lot of mistakes and and i'm sure I see some of those very plainly and others I, I probably uh, I still don't see and will hopefully learn uh, more about down the road. But uh, I think there's always opportunity for us to each get a little bit better and do a little bit more. And if we keep doing that and we do that as a country, then we keep progressing and we keep moving forward. And times of crisis like this create that opportunity. And I'm grateful for that. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I've seen and and I've I've worked with and for uh, really really good leaders and really really bad leaders. And the commonality I see with those really good leaders is a curiosity um, and, um, and and uh, humbleness, and then um, a, an ability to collaborate and delegate. Um, and so I, I can kind of see that in the way you've worked. And, and so I, I know there's going to be great things to come. So um, it'll, it'll be you. good to watch. Thanks. I appreciate it. And you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Mankind, that word should have new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. We will be united in our common interest. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July, and you will once again be fighting for our freedom. Not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution, but from annihilation. We're fighting for our right to live, to exist. And should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today.